The U.S. defense industry is large, complex, and competitive. It is also lucrative for those companies able to navigate it successfully. The American Society of Military Comptrollers helps bridge the gap between the boardroom and the battlefield while supporting transformation in the defense sector. The Business of Defense podcast brings you inside the companies working to achieve this directly from the business leaders and to understand how they create value for their companies and their customers. For more information on ASMC, visit asmconline.org. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Hi, my name is Vincent, and I was diagnosed with autism, or Autism Spectrum Disorder, ASD, at two years old. I am now 18, and this is my story. A very common stereotype for those in the spectrum is that we hate eye contact, the constant social desire to look directly but not too directly, at the person we are talking to when having a conversation. Again, it may differ depending on the severity and the specifics of the case, but for me, I think it might be helpful to visualize for a moment everyone's eyes as a pair of spotlights. Where the lights hits is what they can see, and if you're in the light... You're expected to shine back. This serves a purpose, of course, to dignify the other person and reassure them that you are, in fact, still listening. Almost all social situations necessitate some eye contact. Or else, are you even really having a conversation? This is more of an expectation than anything else. And when people with ASD don't always meet that expectation, the natural response can range anywhere from confusion to resentment and even offense. Perhaps those with ASD do want to have a conversation, but would rather not be presenting all of their ideas as if they were performing for the other person. Often in life, the symptoms of autistic neurodivergence must be hidden away from society, if at all possible. Many on the spectrum refer to this as masking. And I've certainly masked uh, I've certainly masked plenty of times. In a way, I've lived my entire life with some kind of mask on. That's how I am able to approach a mostly neurotypical stream of thought. I'm sure I'm not the only one. The point I'm trying to make here is this. 
there are times where being in the spotlight is not only necessary, but also empowering. Like performing in a theater or giving a presentation that you know top to bottom that you truly believe in. But that isn't all of the time. For many on the spectrum, those moments are few and far between. Because nobody wants to be suddenly thrust into the spotlight when they've forgotten their lines. When somebody tells me to maintain eye contact, I immediately feel a sense of authority looming over me from that person. It's not very conductive to a productive conversation when I feel like the other person is expecting some certain behavior of me and is willing to set me straight by force to see it manifest. I don't always want to be performing. Sometimes what I have to say is private, undeveloped, embarrassing, the list goes on. I should have the freedom to look at you when I want to, and to stare off in the distance when not. Of course, sometimes that looming feeling of authority is intentional, kind of, at least. Like in a job interview, or that presentation example I gave before. I've never been to a job interview. I'm sure you can tell. But I know how they work. It is, right now, one of the major barriers to me entering the workforce, officially. If I have a solid resume, a dependable personality, and say all of the right things, but I just so happen to not look my interviewer in, in the eyes while doing so, what is the possibility that I might just lose the job right then and there, saying that I was distracted, except, no, I wasn't distracted. I wasn't distracted at all, actually. I was listening. Fun fact, you don't need your eyes to listen. You don't. But at that point, the bridge has been burned. I must look for employment elsewhere. That's a problem, right? A serious problem. In extreme cases, you know, conversations with the impatient, I'm going to say neurotypical, so basically normal people, expecting constant or even just basic eye contact, basic, it can feel like being in a hostage situation. That might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, it feels like that sometimes. Having to specifically focus on maintaining eye contact distracts from that cohesive train of thought we all seek and as such it can easily derail a conversation faster than it can improve one personally the only thing more distracting than being watched while i talk is having to stare back at you while i'm doing it you know it's it's tough enough being under a spotlight but to have to reciprocate that is it's it's not difficult in the way that we usually think of difficult as being difficult. But it's definitely troublesome, especially when I'm more focused on talking to you rather than, you know, the way I'm appearing to you. So perhaps, if you ever see someone rambling on in a dialogue like I happen to be, and they happen to not be looking at you often... Or, or ever, it may be a sign 
more of a sign that they are feeling vulnerable and that they trust you with what they have to say. If you are willing to look past this inconvenience, you may learn things about the speaker that would otherwise remain unsaid. Perhaps not everyone need be under the spotlights, nor need to reciprocate when they are more focused on giving you insight rather than giving you eyesight. Seven minutes. Seven and a half minutes. I'll take it. There's a good doctor. That's an excellent series. Um, uh, there's a, some, some Netflix shows that I've seen. Um, there's a Atypical. Um, there's um, As We See It, which is actually on Amazon Prime. As We See It, it's about a group of... Um, young adults on the spectrum who room together, you know, um, atypicals about a college student with, with AS and uh, his family dynamics. Um, then there's love on the spectrum, um, sort of a dating show, both the uh, Australian version and the American version. Um, I also would recommend something um, that's not autism related, but disability related. And that's uh, in terms of a, a movie, a Netflix uh, documentary called Crip Camp. Uh, which is uh, features a uh, disability advocate ab activist uh, Judy Human. Hey everyone, this is Carrie Magro. I'm autistic and have dysgraphia, and today I'm a professional speaker. I'm really, really excited to be here with all of you. Uh, Jossie Burks Abbott is a incredible human being, first and foremost, uh, but he's also a writer, public speaker, and autism self-advocate. Uh, in addition to serving on uh, countless boards, committees, and commissions of several autism and disability organizations, Jossie is on the faculty of the LEND, which is also known as the Leadership Education and Neurodevelopmental and Related Disabilities Program at Ch Boston's uh, Children's Hospital and UMass Boston's Institute for Community Inclusion. Uh, he's contributed to and written articles for such publications as the Autism in Adulthood Journal and the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal as well. He graduated from, yeah, so you're going to kill me for this, but McAllister College in St. Paul. Hopefully I got that right. Uh, <laughs> Minnesota with a BA in English and psychology. And he has an MS in Library and Information Science from Simons University in Boston. And recently, Yasi published a book which had the opportunity to talk to him about quite recently about his life called My Mother's Apprentice and Autistics Rites of Passage. And he currently lives today in Bedford, Massachusetts. Yasi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. So one of the big things I wanted to ask you, sir, is obviously you have a tremendous, tremendous uh, background in discussing caretakers and caregivers and the importance of supporting the autism community. What are some things, and maybe just to kind of change it up a, a bit, maybe like what are five things that caretakers may want to consider when supporting an autistic loved one across the lifespan? I, I guess um, one thing I would suggest is um, 
like I think of when I was diagnosed, I wasn't diagnosed until I was um, right before my 18th birthday. And a psychiatrist I was seeing at the time suggested that I benefited from having a late diagnosis because I was basically treated like a normal child. I mean, at the time I was still bitter, so I couldn't have disagreed with him more because I was still bitter about the misunderstanding. But over the years, I've come to think that he might have had a point. And I think, you know, I try to look for a maybe there's a Goldilocks principle where we start with an understanding of autism, that the person has autism so that there aren't so many recriminations and misunderstandings. But we use that as a floor, not a ceiling. And so that we don't prevent the kid from having as normal life as possible. Now, we recognize that, you know, they're autistic, but for instance, they still might benefit from what other kids would benefit from you know, extracurricular activities, even if they're not designated as autism extracurricular activities. Now, so try to give them as normal life as possible. And even in terms of uh, their behavior, you know, consider that, you know, as a, as a caretaker, you probably know them very intimately. And even if you don't have the autism jargon to explain why they're doing something that they're doing, you know them as a person. And that might, you might know that, oh, yeah, he doesn't like this, or he does like that, or how he reacts to that, you know. Yeah, no, I love that. I love the idea of the Goldilocks principle too. That's just a cool way of expressing it. And uh, uh, another very uh, interesting uh, expression, uh, not necessarily expression, a something that you worked on very closely on uh, for a, a little bit is uh, Nick's Law. And I would just love for you to tell the people who might be watching at home what Nick's Law is and how you got involved Nikki's Law is a great example of what happens when a regular citizen sees something and decides to take action. Nikki's Law is basically, it's a registry of uh, caretakers who work in, let's say, group homes or institutions that have been substantially found to abuse their um, the people they're, they're, they're taking care of. But it hasn't risen to the level, level of uh, criminal prosecution. And what tends to happen, this is what uh, Nikki's mother Cheryl discovered when her son Nikki was abused is that the caretaker can just sort of get a job at another agency. And one of the things she discovered is that this was in Massachusetts. There are other states would have have registries which require um, any organization to look at the registry. And if they find a name on the registry, they can't hire that person. So Cheryl contacted her legislator and basically um, started to lobby the state house to get this law passed. It took a few years, um, and I was happy to join the cause, um, but later in the process, and, you know, by, you know, going to a rally at the State House, um, posting on Facebook, you know, contacting my legislators, and, and encouraging my friends to contact theirs, you know, to give my voice to what seemed like an important cause, you know, and, uh, but eventually the law was passed. It was actually signed by the governor, uh, right before the pandemic hit, it was one of the last things we did in person. And uh, so it's an example of what can happen when an ordinary citizen sees something and decides they're going to take action. That's so cool. Now, to your knowledge, is there anything like a Nikki's Law in other states as well, or is it just in Massachusetts? No, there are some other states. I'm not sure which ones, but there are there are registries in other states. And that's one of the things that uh, Cheryl was working off of when she decided to get it instituted in, in Massachusetts. 
How can people learn more about you after they jump off this uh, interview today? What are your social media handles and how are some ways that people can learn more about you? Well, I, I am on Facebook. You can just uh, look, use my name to search me. I'm on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn. I don't use it that much, but I use it sometimes. Um, Google, if you Google me, you know, a couple of things might come up. A couple of blog posts I've made. Uh, I've made um, couple of presentations I've given. Also, reading my book would be a, a good idea. Um, also, I recently, an article um, for the Autism and Adulthood Journal, an article I recently wrote, which published actually in August, um, on, on being on being Black and autistic. It's called um, theory, A Theory of Mind, mind spelled M-I-N-E, My Perspective on Perspective Taking. Well, Thank you so much, sir, for joining us today. And again, for all of you watching at home, my name is Dr. Karen Magra, professional speaker. I'm also autistic. And this is Stories from the Spectrum. And we will see you next time. Have a good one. Uh, hi, I'm Spencer Griffin. And I'm Sparodina. Um, I'm here to uh, talk about and play my latest single, If You're the One I Really Want. This is a duet I did with Sparrow. And basically this song is about like two people, hypothetical relationship or friendship. It's kind of up to the viewer, I mean, listener to decide what that would be. And, like, they don't know whether they want to be with each other or not. And a lot of the song sort of uses opposites deliberately in each verse. Want to say a few things about it? Yeah, it's a a deliberate use of opposites. It's a fun time, and it's a good one to make you give a second thought to what you're doing in the moment. Indeed it is. Without further ado, here is If You're You're the One one I I Really Want. Wanna come over for some classic cartoons and chill After that we can wax philosophical over Tom Waits records We can have a contest over who can make the goofiest joke They'll make fun of ourselves if we can't think of anything better Oh, I can't decide what to do I feel over the moon with you but you also make me sick I wonder what will do the trick To make you see that I want you Though I don't know if it's true If you're the one I really want in my life Like a child I'll trust in everything you say Even though I feel sometimes like a world Decide what to do. I feel over the moon with you. But you also make me sick. I wonder what will do the trick to make you see that I want you. Though I don't know if it's true. If you're the one I really want in my life. 
like a square peg in a round hole There's no place that I feel like I truly fit There's no thing I'll give up on Even though sometimes I feel I'd like to quit Just give me a chance Soon enough you'll find out Maybe I'm really worth it after all People say I don't take anything too seriously But every day I wonder if life has any meaning at all And though I've risen above everyone's expectation Seems like any moment all my hopes could take a fall Oh, I can't decide what to do I feel over the moon with you But you also make me sick I wonder what will do the trick To make you see that I want you But I don't know if it's true If you're the one I really want in my life If you're the one I really want in my life everyone, my name is Alex Len. Today I'm talking about the importance of inclusion and the story of inclusion. When I was younger, I was just a kid on the spectrum. I didn't know I was on a spectrum, but I was on a spectrum. The point of the story is that inclusion changed my life. When people who don't have autism included me into their social circles, it opened my mind, it brightened my horizons, and it helped me learn how to make more friends. And the most important part is when people like you, who don't have autism, open your heart and mind to people with autism, be more receptive towards you and loving towards you. And that's, that's the most touching part about the the autism neurotypical relationship is that like you know both sides are reciprocated very well and if they reciprocate like each other then it's great and that's how it's going to make the society a better place for everyone and a more equal place for people on the spectrum and a better place for people on the spectrum and it's very important because when I was included, I learned so much. I learned about different topics. I learned about communication. I learned about um, uh, the mannerism in communication with neurotypicals. And I learned about the importance of mining people's boundaries. And also... Um, and creating a balance between mining people's boundaries and also keeping my original qualities of my autism intact so I don't have to compromise myself at the same time but not also not not and at the same time not crossing other people's boundaries so I think it's very important that we um that we talk about that you know because um not everyone's going to accept people like us and they sh- but 
but they should. But unfortunately, that's not the case in the real world. But my point is, inclusion is very important because with inclusion, we can unite as one to understand each other better. And um, with inclusion comes a lot of responsibility, um, including from the neurotypical side. If if you don't include people with autism, you'll not learn a different side of different side of humanity and other people. And um, if you do, you'll not regret it because you'll get to learn more about the near the autism condition about about so much with autism, and it also brighten your horizons, your near typical horizons, and what is considered normal and unnormal, you know, because there's no such thing as being normal. Everyone's different in the end of the day. Um, it's just a label. We pull on, pull on each other. And you'll learn that people with autism are no different than you. We want love, acceptance, and inclusion. And if you give us those things, we will reciprocate in the end, even though we don't seem like we don't seem like we're the reciprocal type of people. We're people that reciprocate, but we do. In the end of the day, if you give us a chance. So I uh, implore everyone to include each other, because it's super important. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.